This is Unsupervised Learning, Red Point AI Podcast. I'm Jacob Efron, and today we had an awesome guest in Logan Kilpatrick, the first ever I'll hire at OpenAI. Logan has what I think is truly one of the most interesting jobs in the world, and our conversation certainly reflected that. We talked about the breadth of offerings OpenAI has and how people are building on top of them today, how OpenAI prioritizes what they're going to build. We talked about agents and the future and what it means for the internet. And we also hit on Google Gemini and what the model means for the ecosystem. I think folks are really going to enjoy this one. Logan, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate you uh, having you here. Yeah, I'm super excited. This is going to be an awesome conversation. Awesome. Well, to start, uh, I have to ask, um, I think we just celebrated the year anniversary of ChatGPT. If I remember correctly, I think you were like literally hired pre-ChatGPT, but then started like when there was a million users or something. So yeah, pretty crazy uh, transformation there. How do you use ChatGPT like in your life? It's a lot of coding things. I think like, honestly, I spend like a decent portion of my time trying to make our developer platform actually better. And I am not somebody who is like classically, like I have a computer science background as a software engineer, but I'm not like a web development expert. So I think there was a lot of things that I don't know. And I have like the idea of exactly what I want for developers when they show up on our platform, but it's oftentimes hard to translate that into code. And like half of the features that I ship are like 90% chat GPT code. And it, <laughs> it really like as an engineer has given me like so much more freedom to go beyond what I would normally be able to do with Without having to like spend 13 hours like reading the documentation for react and all these other things so it's been awesome that's that's like a bulk of like true coding things is still like what i get the most value on a day-to-day basis i love that i mean one thing i'm struck by with your job of, of kind of you know the developer side of the house is there's just such a breadth of products you guys have um and obviously a lot of these are, are incredibly widely used i'm kind of curious are there things that you have shipped at OpenAI where you're like I don't think a ton of people are using this today, but like in the future, it's it's going to be something that a lot more people use. It's funny. I remember we actually talked in March and you were like, embeddings, watch out for that. Like that's something that, you know, is underused today. As you look across the product suite, is there a particular set of things that you're like, I think, you know, in a year from now, there'll be be a lot more. Yeah, I, I think it may, and maybe it's not unexpected, but I think the assistance API is is what is going to end up being like a long term thing that it, it just takes a while to ramp people up. And I think part of the reason why is we release a beta product. There's like a bunch of things that we still need to build to make it like an incredible product experience, like the rag strategies, giving developers more customization over that. But it's very clear from people's reaction, that like they want this, like they don't want to have to deal with all the nitty gritty things themselves. I think there's a lot of customers who like do want that and we should give them the knobs or they should use like our embeddings API and Llama index or Langchain or whatever it is to like continue to like build a more complicated product. But I do think if you look at where we are today, there's going to be so many more experiences a year from today that are powered by assistance just because like we're going to build a bunch of great tools. You already have code interpreter. Like it's it's really exciting. And to think back six months ago from today, the fact that like you couldn't use code interpreter in the API. And now like, that's the thing that people were like most excited about in many cases with ChatGPT, And it's available to like everyone now to go and build into your product. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what people build. I think it's going to be incredible. That's awesome. I thought you were going to say multimodal. Cause I remember you did a talk recently where you're like, next year is the year of multimodal. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there will be a bunch of multimodal stuff. I think we're still early on the vision use cases. I do think that like what you can use the vision model with today, there's a bunch of domains where it's like constrained. I think it'll get better over time, but I think a lot of the really, really cool stuff requires like a very detailed, the model has to have a very detailed understanding of like the positional relationship between objects and the image. And I think the model does a good job at this today, but I think there's a lot of use cases that don't work well until it like is perfect at it. And I think this is like the conceptual difference today with like GPT 3.5 and GPT 4, once you make that jump, all of a sudden, all these new use cases are are unlocked because it's so much more robust. And I think the same thing is going to be true for vision where like today we're kind of in like the GPT 3.5 vision era. And I think once we can make the jump to the next level, like that's really when like so many more use cases will be robust. So um, that's that that's the piece that I'm waiting for. You know, a lot of our listeners uh, are probably using, you know, GPT 3.5, GPT 4. Um, and you know, I think a question we get a lot is, you know, wh- which one should I start with or where should I begin? And I thought one thing that was interesting in, in Dev Day is you guys obviously announced the ability to fine-tune GPT-4, but I think it's like rolled out to people that have already tried to fine-tune GPT-3.5. And so I feel like this the sequencing is probably clear in your head of like, you know, in which use cases and, you know, what ordering of, of, of trying should one go through. But curious, like how you'd articulate that to folks who are building in the space today, like where where should they get started on the, on, on the OpenAI offerings today? Yeah, it's a great question. I think Fine-tuning is a slightly different story, and we can talk about that as well. I think 
it really tends to be that like you just have to do a little bit more work to like finally craft your prompt if you want something to work like really really well with 3.5 turbo i think that model is is super capable and there there are a bunch of use cases that it it works great for i think after you get out of the scope of like three or four instructions in a single prompt, I think that's where it really starts to break down. And that's really where GPT-4, like you can see the delta and the performance. So I think as you build more complicated requests for the models, um, switch over to GPT-4. But I feel like now, especially with after dev day, all the price drops that we had, it's like, it's so much more affordable to use those models. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people just like dive straight into GPT-4 today, just because it's like not worth the extra effort of having to try to finagle your way into um, doing it. And, and for people who are trying to stick with 3.5, they go and fine tune it and they can, uh, we shared in the blog post when 3.5 fine tuning came out that we, a lot of the early customers that we were working with were getting GPT-4 level performance using GPT-3.5 by fine tuning and, and doing some prompt engineering. And they were getting like token saving costs and, and all these things. It's uh, it's exciting. Do you have like, I mean, it sounds like one of these rules of thumbs for you is, you know, when you're having to input like three or four specific requirements into a prompt, like any other rules of thumb you use from like, yeah, it might be time to to try the larger, you know, more costly model. Yeah, I, I think like a lot of basic things like the knowledge cutoff piece is another big one. I think there's also like a bunch of uh, model level improvements, and, and this is all talked about in our documentation, that like haven't made their way to 3.5 that only exist in in the four turbo preview model today. Um, so I think if you want some of those things, like I think there's probably some delta in performance between function calling, for example, which is like another huge use case that people care a ton about, um, but also another, another great area where you can go and do fine tuning. You can fine tune 3.5 for function calling. It works really well. You can actually like if you had like 50 functions, you can fine tune a bunch of data using, uh, give a bunch of function calling data and actually like fine tune the functions out of the prompt so that you don't, because you have to pay for the tokens of the functions for every call and you can literally make those go away. And then um, the model essentially just like hallucinates the functions, which is like a weird, <laughs> a weird byproduct, but it's like great for developers because you don't have to pay the 50 function token cost every single time you send a response or send a prompt. Makes total sense. And you know, one other announcement I thought was really interesting that you guys had is you, you introduced these custom models, right? Yeah. And I feel like everyone's kind of intrigued uh, where that fits into the strategy long-term, you know, who the right folks are to, to be building those like how do you think about both today and in the future where that fits into to the kind of open AI offerings? Yeah, I think today you really have to have a lot of data. And I think you have to have a lot of data in a domain that the model's not already super great at. So it's usually like, you know, you can imagine the legal space or the medical space areas where like the model just like might not have the best access to the data and like your company does have access to great data and you can think of a thousand different um, companies where this where this might work well for them I think it it probably will end up being that a lot of the customers that we work with a lot of the early use cases with custom models th the goal actually is let's take all those learnings and let's make it more accessible because I think like two to three million dollars for a model um, or however much it ends up costing, is great for those customers who have enough money to pay for it. But I think there's a lot of developers who like want to benefit, like startups who want to benefit from this technology who like don't have two to $3 million in CapEx that they want to go and throw at, um, at trying to make one of these models. And especially with, in a lot of cases, like how great the open source models are and you can use those and fine tune and like, it's also nice because in those examples, you you don't need the same order of magnitude of tokens. Like I think it's, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think it's like you need like billions of tokens uh, to do one of those custom models. And like n most people don't have good enough data where it like actually makes sense to do that um, unless you have a bunch of like trove of information. Um, so it, it'll be interesting. And do you think, I mean, can I imagine two versions of the future? One is uh, obviously as, as your uh, underlying models get better, you know, the amount of people that you're like, oh, the base model doesn't do my space as well, you know, decreases. On the other hand, it feels like there's a big desire from enterprises to train on their own data to, you know, have that's part of their proprietary advantage. Like, do you imagine, are we at like peak need for custom models now? Or is that something, <laughs> you know, how do you see that evolving over time? That's a great question. I I think the future is always going to be really great base models. I think the base models can continue to get really great. I think they'll be more steerable, which will help this problem in, in a lot of ways. I still think there'll always be the need for custom models. I think also just like 
it gets into like the really nitty gritty details of the performance. And I think the custom models, um, you know, over time could become more efficient in some ways. Cause you could, and, and again, I, I don't know the specific details of how we're doing all these engagements with people, but I think you could like remove certain data from, from training sets that like just the model doesn't need to have. So you get a more compute efficient model because you can then pump in all the data that like you really care deeply about. Um, so I think there'll be a bunch of things that like, the base model improvements will never solve the problem fully and you'll you'll still need those custom models and i think the real question is whether or not that custom model offering like ends up being something that we can get into an api and like make affordable for for all developer i mean it, it'll still probably always be more expensive just because of the process but um i'm, I'm excited for that day and I, I hope we we push in that direction totally like you bring your own data and yeah. kind of just figure it out yourself exactly though i guess obviously you still need the billions of tokens to to make it you know useful to do on your own it, it also takes a lot of expertise. And I think this is part of the reason why we've wanted people to fine tune 3.5 turbo before they went to four is like, it's just, it actually starts to require like some level of, of like machine learning understanding to like go and do that well. And I think a lot of people, um, at least we've seen with 3.5, like you might not actually get great results if you didn't make great data. And like, because of how accessible these APIs are, like this could be your first foray into machine learning and like never have trained a model before. And um, I think hopefully the custom model program actually does like help solve this problem in some sense. Cause like our research teams like actually handhold you. You could say I have a bunch of data, but we don't have, you know, the machine learning world-class machine learning team that's going to help us train these models. And our team comes in and actually helps them uh, do that, which is really nice. Totally. I have to imagine that has like the world's longest wait list. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You'd be surprised. I feel like if there's companies that you're thinking of that, this would be great for them. I'm happy to connect. I think it'd be interesting. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, I'm sure we'll get some pings on that uh, as when this releases. <laughs> You know, one thing I'm always intrigued by in, in your and the team's job is just your product footprint is so large now. You serve so many different types of users and use cases. Um, how do you guys prioritize what to build? Obviously, both the product resources, you have limited GPUs. How do you allocate those? Uh, how do those decisions get made? Yeah, that's a great question. I think this is our leadership team does an incredible job of trying to balance all of the, there's so many. Uh, it, it's one of the most difficult environments to like make those decisions. Cause I think it's like, on one hand, there's a bunch of things that are like really, really clear that developers want. And, and one like very tactical example of this is like API key based usage. People want to go into the usage dashboard and see what the, what the spend is per API key. And like, it's actually not like a extremely difficult engineering feat to make that happen. Like the teams can do that. Um, it's just the trade-off against that and like reliability as an example. And I think there's a bunch of things that continue to be the North Star. I think one of them is like providing a world-class service to our customers. And that requires that we continue to make a bunch of investments in reliability. And I think if you can't do that well, none of the other stuff really matters. Um, I think the other piece of it as well is uh, we've been so constrained from an engineering resource perspective that we've really had to focus on like shipping new capabilities. Like we have all this stuff lined up. We have the like actual research work done. It's just about productionizing that. And to be honest, like that oftentimes takes priority over like the features of like building dashboards and monitoring and alerts and stuff like that. But I think as the team grows, like we'll just have more time naturally to do that work. And those are also the things that I think the like rough edges that we just now have the time to go and fix and, and hopefully we'll ship a bunch of those things in 2024 and like really have like a true enterprise platform that people can be really excited about using. I'm always struck by, it seems like some of the things that, you know, are seventh or eighth in the announcements on dev day, like, you know, even the text to speech stuff, it's like, there's entire companies that that's just yeah. like all they do. And it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing the breadth you're able to cover. That text-to-speech model is so incredible. I think it's, <laughs> I've been playing around with the demos for for months and months and months now. And it is just, it's so good at, at doing what it does that I'm, I'm, yeah, the future for that product line is going to be so exciting. Cause like, there's just, there's an infinite amount of use cases where those voices just end up being like really, really helpful. And 11 labs has done an incredible job. Like they have such like wide distribution. I think there's, um, it's not clear to me if that's like the case for developers, like developers, I feel like 11 labs has like been a, a very consumer play and they've done a great job of making it accessible to people who are making content. So it'll be interesting to see like whether they retain a bunch of those users or whether people come over to use our API, but ho hopefully it's our API. I think it's great. Hopefully we'll see. <laughs> no, it makes, uh, makes sense. I mean, I guess I'm curious, you know, obviously there's so many things people come to open AI for, uh, how do you think about when it makes sense to use open source models or when it makes sense to, to not be in the open AI ecosystem? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's, 
it's a little bit, you know, I think in some ways people want to own their own destiny. And I think I, I hear people when they, when they talk about it, like at the end of the day, if you have an open source model, like you own the, the weights, you own the IP. And I think like there's a bunch of business use cases where that makes a lot of sense. I, my personal opinion is that I continue to think that like the models we ship are always going to be better than, than open source models. I think there's, it's maybe less apparent today because of, um, like just the orders of magnitude of these models, but like at a certain point, there will be points where like, it's just really, really cost intensive to like train these really, really large models. And there's just so much engineering work that goes into that. And I'm a deep believer in the open source community. Like I, before I was at OpenAI, I spent a long time helping yeah. build the Julia ecosystem and the open source Julia programming language. So um, open source runs deep in my veins, but it's just uh, the the reality of it is that the, large models from these companies will, will always end up being better. Um, again, I think like if you want to own the weights and, and that's like critical for your business use case, I think it makes sense. I also think that because of the weights being open source for some of these models, like Llama, for example, the types of customization and things you can do with fine tuning is just a little bit like more than we offer in our like standard fine tuning offerings. I think that's another use case, but I think that will sort of like slowly shift over time. We'll be able to like do more of all the different fine tuning and like training techniques that people want, like give them, you know, again, not, not committing to this, but like, you know, people want to RLHF the models and stuff like that. And I think like you could technically do that with open source models today and it's not something we support. And I think those are, those are all examples of things that I think make a lot of sense for us to do in the future. I feel like one popular narrative is like, you know, OpenAI will always have the state of the art model and that will always be able to push the boundaries of what can be done. But maybe what you could do with an OpenAI model a year ago, you can then use an open source model off the shelf. And I think there's there's still this question about like, okay, so if you're doing kind of GPT-3 level capabilities, is it going to be cheaper using the open source model or you guys keep slashing prices? So it honestly might be. Uh, but, you know, I think that's, that's uh, I'm curious for your take on that for some of the, you know, less, uh, I guess it was cutting edge a year ago and now it seems like there's a bunch of models that can do those use cases. Yeah, I think it depends on the sophistication of the user. Like, I think there's a lot of people like even for me today, and maybe I, I should do this and figure out how difficult it is, but like just spinning up some like going on replicate or something and like doing all that work that's required. Um seems like it, it could be a hurdle for people. And I think there's like a bunch of like DevX value, like just the experience of just being able to go and use an API and not have to worry about getting GPU allocation, which is impossible to get, or like using one of these other these other providers. So um, I think that's, that is part of the equation as well. Makes sense. And I'm curious, like what tools do you see people most commonly use alongside OpenAI when they're kind of shipping their products? That's a that's a great question. I think there's a whole slew of of, of observability uh, products that are out there and and different. And I won't I won't name specific names because I because I'm an angel investor. I know the founders <laughs> or whatever it is. I don't want to. I feel like if OpenAI endorsed one on a podcast, yeah. they would just talk about that forever. They'd be like, we're we're the official one that's been stamped. Yeah, there, there's a lot. And and to be honest with you, I think they give a lot of value. Like I think I was I was meeting with someone on our team, one of the PMs, and um, he was saying to me, he came from Stripe, and he was saying how it's like his mental model of using APIs was like so deeply uh, built on top of what Stripe offers, which they have this like dashboard where every time you can do something, you can see in the dashboard, like the the logs and everything like that. And he was like, it was impossible for me to use the OpenAI API because we don't have that. And he was like, that was one of his reasons for going to these observability companies is just to be able to like see the requests as they come in um, through, through the proxied services. And I think like that makes a ton of sense. I think at the end of the day, like we should build that for developers because it's what people want. It's extremely useful to have. Um, I think like from a, a more tooling, like less observability, more like actually building features perspective, the llama indexes of the world, the lang chains of the world, people are using a ton. Um, it'll be interesting. Haystack is another one. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that changes over time. Like I think lang chain's a great example of their open source project has done incredible, like Langchain itself has done incredible. Um, I like Harrison a lot, so I hope Langsmith is really successful, but it'll be interesting to see like, do developers and enterprises actually end up adopting those tools or like where's, yeah, where does the, the value end up being accrued? And I think like having an open source project is great, but at the end of the day, they need to make money and build a real business. And um, it, it'll be interesting to see if Langsmith is like what what gets the most traction from that perspective as well. Totally. So I guess, yeah, you have, you know, obviously you see kind of developers hacking the other projects and then you see kind of the more enterprise side of things on the enterprise side. Like, are they using the surrounding tools today or is it mostly like, you know, they use the APIs or they use kind of open AI off the shelf? Yeah, they the people are definitely using those tools. I think it again, it, it 
enterprises are so interesting to see. Like everybody is so different. I think there's a lot of companies that like even companies that have a lot of technical sophistication that are using these tools just because like whomever is the engineering manager or like the engineering directors like made the decision that it's not worth their eng time to like go and build those things. But I think there's also a lot of companies that are like very uncertain about taking on those dependencies, especially given like how the whole open source space when it's like a venture backed company as well, I think always is like much different than a lot of like, like traditional open source projects that are like truly open source and like built by the community and things like that. So I think a lot of companies have like gone and rebuilt their infrastructure. And I think it's my, my take is it's surprising how far you can get or like how it's not that much work to go and rebuild a lot of this infrastructure yourself. I think at the present moment, I think like, two years from now or something like that, maybe that'll be like completely different and everybody will just use these off the shelf tools or some SaaS product or whatever it is. But I think today you could actually get away with rebuilding most of the things that you need. And like, this is how I, like when I use our API, this is mostly what I do, to be honest, like all the abstraction layers, I just go and build myself because it's not a ton of work in most cases. And I guess, you know, I feel like you have this fascinating seat seeing how folks are building this. If you were to like leave OpenAI and start a company, like is there like a particular <laughs> space you're like, oh man, like I really wish someone was solving that problem? Or as you think about blockers that developers and enterprises have. It's a good question. I don't think about leaving OpenAI often. No, so I would I, never insinuate that was. I don't. <laughs> um, that's a good question. I maybe we'll. I'll think about it. And we can. We can come back to it. I'm not sure if there's something like. I think the reality is like the Lang chains and Llama indexes of the world have solved a lot of these problems that developers have. I think like even like prompt layer is another example of like a company that's solving like a different lens of the problems and like managing all your different prompts as they come in. I think the thing actually that. I'm most excited about today is, I, I do have an answer for the question, um, is around evals. Like, I think somebody should really go and make a, a a company that's like natively only trying to solve the eval problem. Because I think it's like a fundamental challenge for people using LLMs. A new model comes out, whether it's from OpenAI or some other provider. I don't know as the model, as the end user of that model, how it's going to impact my use case. And really the only way to do that is to have a bunch of robust uh, evals that like you go and build. And the process of making evals today is a huge pain, totally. pain in the butt. Like it's not fun to, it's like not fun work to do. And I think somebody needs to come and build like a really, really compelling product. And it's actually interesting to me that I haven't seen so, and I'm curious if you've seen any companies that you're talking to that have solved that problem, but I have not personally seen anyone solve that problem. And it seems like it's one of the most impactful things, especially in today's world where the model iteration cycle is so quick and there's always a new model coming out that's supposed to be better. And you just don't know if it's actually better. And it requires so much human time to figure out like, is this actually better for my use case? No, it's interesting. I mean, there's probably like, you know, 25, 30 really early stage companies going after that, but I don't know if anyone's quite cracked it yet yeah. in many ways because it's hard to automate a lot of that. And I think there's both obviously, you know, evals comparing models to models and then on your own use cases. And it was interesting. We had Linus from Notion on a few weeks ago. And what he yeah. was saying is like, it's so hard to build a product here because the biggest benefit of these eval uh, tools is when you actually go see the places where it fails. And you just learn so much from going in the details yeah. of those that like trying to automate that away in any uh, in any way is actually like gets rid of that that whole beneficial oh, experience. Interesting. That's a that's a great perspective to have. That's that's cool. I could imagine that being true because I feel like the edge cases like is where you're learning the most totally. about how the models work and also like how they've changed and things like that. That's that's a, a cool perspective. Well, I mean, speaking of, uh, of of models that we're trying to figure out where they where they fit in. Um, you know, I'd be remiss not to ask you about Google Gemini. I guess literally just dropped this morning, so I guess I know it's it's fresh. Um, but curious for your take on kind of like where that will end up fitting into the ecosystem. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for Google. I think like all the stories about how hard it is for them to like get product out the door for whatever reasons, if that if that's actually true or not. I think it it takes a lot to ship something on the order of magnitude of, of Google. And I was reading Jeff Dean's tweet this morning, and it seems like they put an incredible amount of work and thought into getting this model out. So. I'm really, I'm really excited. I think it's a the biggest question for me from like a consumer and developer side is like, will people actually use their APIs? Will they use Bard? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's it's awesome that they're doing it, and um, I'm personally happy because at the end of the day, I think we're all, we're all Google customers as well. Like I'm a I'm a Gmail user, I'm a Docs user, I'm a I'm a Google Search user. So I think it's it's cool that they're they're pushing on that innovation, and I'm, I'm hopeful for me as a customer that I get to to benefit from that stuff as well. 
I mean, one thing you brought up earlier about where you thought was going to kind of be most used next year was the assistance API. And I, I'd love to get into like GPTs and the assistance yeah. API because I think it's just, it's fascinating. Um, maybe I'd actually love to start with just the journey over the last year. I mean, I feel like your first foray into this space was via plugins. It seems like maybe that didn't have quite the traction folks wanted. And so I'd love to hear just a little bit about maybe learnings from that experience and also how it kind of evolved into where you are today. Yeah, that's a great question. I think plugins had a really ambitious goal and mission. I think in a lot of ways it was um it was kind of framed as a product release and I think my my reframing of it in hindsight was more of of like a kind of like we did with ChatGPT originally as like a research preview. I think like just the very essence of the idea that you would like put this publicly hosted accessible to the internet uh, AI plugin.manifest file which kind of described what you wanted a model to do um with your open API spec. I think it was like from a product strategy, you know, maybe not like the best implementation from a from a developer from a, a consumer angle, but I think from like a research perspective, like it was, I think it was net positive that that's the direction that we went. Um, it's interesting. The the there was a lot of limitations with plugins. I think mostly, honestly, like plugins could have been a, a more successful product service area. I think there there's just so much resource constraint uh, inside of OpenAI that like a lot of the folks who who helped ship plugins, like as soon as that product was released, like ended up having to go help ship browsing and went go ship code interpreter and then the thousand other things that came after that. Um, and it, it becomes really easy to uh, to sort of lose sight of the some of the things that you released before. And then I also think there's plugins has all these like security, privacy questions and the the beautiful part is that most of those problems have now been solved with GBTs. Like I think a lot of the problem areas that we had um, around like taking consequential actions and like needing to like prompt the user for consent and a bunch of the different auth challenges that we had with plugins have now been solved with GBTs. And it's a much better um, it's a much better interface because it's so many of the requests that developers had was like, I want to have browsing plus my G plus my plugin. That wasn't possible. I want to have like code interpreter interacting with my plugin, which wasn't possible. And now you can sort of check, 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 add, add in whatever your custom action is, which is essentially a plugin. Um, and it just works out of the box, which I think is, is great. And the GPT store coming in the future is going to be like, again, there were so many discoverability challenges as everybody pointed out with the plugin store with just basic search and a couple of categories that I think, uh, the GPT marketplace is, is really going to, hit a home run on solving that problem. So it'll be awesome. I mean, I'm curious so far, like anything, you know, well, one, just like trends and things you've seen people building, like in the, in, in the time that it has been out, like what, what, how are people kind of, uh, are using them? Yeah. I, 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 my, my instinct thus far is that most of the use cases are really around like sharing prompts. I think to be honest with you today, that's like a, a majority of it. I think it also goes back to the reality that there is a bunch of value still in prompt engineering. Like you oh. can get it. Like I've seen some of the most popular GBTs and around coding and building websites. And like you can get a pretty far value add from just having a great set of instructions. I haven't seen, and and maybe just because I haven't been looking hard enough, like a bunch of incredible examples of people using custom actions. I'm sure people are doing this, but I think they're still just like the everyday person can't, who doesn't know how to code. Like it's just, a little bit of a frictionful experience to go in and add a custom action because you have to like put in the open API spec and understand some of those nuances. So um, I'll, I'll be interested to see if there's a world where there's, you know, you can add even more actions from, you know, a plugin catalog or, or something like that in the future. I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if we end up getting to that point. It's interesting. I feel like people have been talking about the death of prompt engineering for a while. Like, you know, yeah, it's useful now, but at some point it won't be. And it, it persists in being quite useful. I do think it will go, it will go away in some, like, I think the fundamental nature of prompt engineering is communication. I think humans are, especially when we have to use our fingers for some reason, just like lazy communicators. And I think the model will will hopefully evolve to do something like what Dolly is doing, Dolly 3 is doing today, where you give it the prompt and then in ChatGPT and the API today, you actually end up getting a revised prompt where we have this like layer of translation between your original request and what the model ends up seeing. And I hope that we end up with something like that just because my instinct is you'll always need this like prompt, like more, 
you'll always need to communicate better. And I think that's the reframing of prompt engineering is like, if you just communicate what you actually want in a very concise way, it works. Um, and you, the, the question is, can we reduce the friction for people so that you don't have to type out like all the verbose stuff um, and get the model to, to try to do all the things that you really want it to do. Well, I guess now you can speak it, you can draw it and, you know, put it in. There's all, all sorts of uh, yeah. new ways to communicate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, has there been a particular example you've seen of GPTs or using the assistance API where you're like, that's kind of how we were hoping people were going to use it or anything come to mind that you thought was a particularly cool implementation? I, I haven't actually seen somebody build this yet, but it's something that I'm really excited for somebody to build. So maybe this is a slightly adjacent answer to the question, but I really want a text first assistant experience. I think that's going to be like, you know, you can imagine the world where you use the assistance API and connect it with Twilio or one of the other text messaging providers and um, can bring sort of that, bring that assistant ChatGPT experience to so many surface areas that like weren't possible today. And the reality is like, you don't do all of your work in a web browser, you don't do all your work in ChatGPT as a, as an API service area. And there's so many different areas where I just want AI to be able to assist me and um, not have to leave that experience. And I think assistance is a great way of doing this. And the fact that you can now like pass around thread IDs between some of these different objects, like I really, I, I haven't seen somebody build an assistant that I can text yet, but that is what I want. Like I, I have so many of my ideas when I'm talking to other people on, um, on uh, via text message or something like that, and or even via email, I think is another interesting one. I, th I think this is why uh, Grok and, and Twitter will end up being useful is because people are throwing around so many interesting ideas on Twitter all the time that I think having like an AI native experience that's like adjacent to that will be interesting and, and useful in some capacity. Super interesting. How do you think you'd engage with that? Like, you know, uh, you know, if you were in kind of in email or in Twitter or in some sort of text experience, like how would the uh, kind of AI assistant come in? Yeah, I, I want to be able to like text and be like, hey, like do X, Y, and Z kind of like, you know, how you would imagine, like I've seen so many of these virtual um, like AI executive assistant or personal assistant things. And the, the big challenge with all those is I need to, they're not like coming to my existing workflows. They're like, you need to now go to my AIassistant.com website and like import your Gmail and like do all this weird stuff that like, that's like a new experience for me. And it's really hard to get into that habit versus like, I'm so used to just pulling out my phone and like texting someone and be like, Hey, I need help with X, Y, and Z thing. Like, can you help me? Um, and I think that experience is just going to be so much better when you can like send a text message or send, send an email. And I think those, those two particular service areas I'm intrigued by most because the number of you don't have to re-educate users on how to text or send an email right. and i think you need to re-educate users today like this has been one of the fundamental challenges of ChatGPT, and then the team has done a bunch of stuff to try to address this but you show up on ChatGPT, and you're like i don't really know what i'm supposed to do next um and i think it's just hard to you can imagine in a world where you're texting an assistant you know i loop in my grandma it's a it's a group chat with me my grandma and my my ai assistant and i'm like hey grandma like whatever your question is, like, go and ask it here. Like you need help sending an email or you're trying to find an answer to something like you can just do it right here. And you, you like have that multiplayer, um, experience and there's like someone there to help you. And like that, that experience is just not possible in ChatGPT today. That, that experience isn't possible on, you know, AIassistant.com with whatever the, the, the personal assistant experience is. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Yeah. It's super interesting. And hearing you speak, I'm kind of struck by the fact that like, you know, at OpenAI, you have these two different, you know, uh, approaches almost one being like chat GPT is like this consumer front end of like come here and you can like literally do everything like you have so many things that you guys can do from chat GPT and then on the other hand as you say there's so many things you do outside of of, of that world and uh, it's really convenient to have a chat GPT like experience embedded in those in those other experiences like how do you kind of I mean does that create a tension at some point or like you know uh, or even as you think about five ten years like how much of what we do and how we engage with these AI assistants do you think happens through like the OpenAI homepage or like, you know, the ChatGPT page versus like just hidden behind in other applications? I think it's for OpenAI to have the order of magnitude of success uh, relative to Google in the sense that like people start their search experience on google.com and that's like the only place that they do it i think is a is not a long shot but i think it's just a higher hill to climb than being present where our 
where our customers and users already are. Like not not everyone is always going to want to go to ChatGPT, uh, chat.openai.com or, or use the iOS app. I think being accessible in, in other service areas. And I think this actually goes back to, this is essentially Microsoft's strategy with Copilot. They're building that Copilot experience, which uses GPT-4 and, and a bunch of other models um, directly into the service areas that the Microsoft customer base is already using. And I think that that strategy resonates with me. I think it makes a lot of sense. Of course, it's easy easier for Microsoft to do because they they have those means of distribution. I think it's different for us because we sort of have to build all of those means of distribution and connect in all those different places that don't exist for us today. Totally. Well, I really hope someone listening builds this all because I think like there's <laughs> a lot of really cool. I love like linking up with Twilio too. I think yeah. that'd be super interesting. You know, on this GPT's topic, I was listening to another podcast you were on and you know, you talked about how you guys have put some limitations around agents taking action and that, you know, I think you said literally that we may not be ready for what happens to the internet when, you know, there's these autonomous agents that are that are all over the place. I'm curious, like, how you think about the timeline to have maybe agents with more wide-ranging capabilities. And then I'd love to dig into that more. Like, what do you think the consequences are for, for the internet as a whole? I think there's, um, I think there's a bunch of internet infrastructure work that actually needs to happen. Like t for me today as a, as a developer, as somebody who I, I feel like I'm close to the pulse of what's happening. Like I would say I, so. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the safeguards that have been built in to like help authenticate humans versus AI agents on the web. And I think there's, there's so, there's so many people on the internet that I think there's a lot of like, it's going to take year on the order of years for that to be possible. And I think my hope is that we end up moving towards that process gradually enough that people have time to adapt. Because I think there is a world where, you know, I think we have a bunch of safety mitigations built into our vision models and stuff like that. But I think you could use models to, to get past all of those things that you would normally use to prove that you're a human on sites. And there's a lot of things, if you think about it, that you don't want to show AI agents certain information. And as a developer of a website or as somebody who creates something, um, you probably want like a different door for, for AI agents. It's also just like a really, in a lot of ways, a really inefficient way to use these models if they have to like jump through all the same like hoops, hoops that like we as humans are like well adjusted to. It's kind of, it would be kind of odd if that ends up being the default um, sort of experience for agents to go and retrieve information from places online. So I... It, it feels like it has to be on the order of years just because uh, of of some of these infrastructural limitations. And, and maybe the only way that ends up accelerating is if companies like, you know, the, the sort of guardians of the internet in some way, like Apple and Google and all these other like really large corporations end up getting together and building some consortium about like how these tools interact. And, and I can imagine that being, that being the case. And I actually think I was, I was having a conversation with um, Parag from the former CEO of Twitter. And he was saying that there actually is something that these companies are working on. And I'm pretty sure it's like an open standard or something and might already be out there. So I'm, I'm, I need to do some research and figure out um, what that is. But I'm, I'm curious if that ends up being the solution to part of this problem. I love that idea of, of having kind of two different paths for like a human user versus an agent user. And it also sounds like basically you guys probably could push the capabilities of these agents, but are, you know, you're waiting till that's kind of in place to make sure that they end up getting used responsibly. And there's kind of a clear, uh, a clear infrastructure that allows them to be used responsibly. I think the responsibility angle is one of it. I also think like being, uh, having humility on it. I think it's like a hard, it's hard to do it well, just because there's like, anytime you go out and do and re request anything from the internet, even as me as a human using the internet, like things don't always work as I would expect, like more often than not, we have this experience totally. as users <laughs> of the internet. So I think it's just like hard to build a really uh, reliable and robust experience. So I think, I think that's also an angle of it. I don't think there's the the perfect product experience that we're just sitting on waiting. Um, I, think I wasn't sure, so you know, I had to ask. Yeah, but. I think that I think there's some I think there's some real engineering challenges to solve, some real product experience challenges to solve, in addition to all of the safety and and the safety work that needs to happen. Totally, I feel like we went through like an entire hype cycle with agents in the last like six months. <laughs> it's it is <laughs> it's crazy. I wonder if anyone actually got any value from from like some of the. I I, I do think it's positive that it like forced people to really start thinking about these problems. I think had. AutoGBT and Baby AGI and a bunch of those other um, agent products not gone uh, sort of like commercial, uh, like a consumer viral, um, it wouldn't have forced a lot of people to try to think about this problem and like figure out and, and, and in a lot of ways probably actually slow down some of the push that they were doing um, just because of like the potential for, for misuse with these with the agents that are out there. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, it makes uh, makes sense. I mean, obviously, I, I feel like with Demo Day, you know, between GPTV, Dolly 3, text-to-speech, like, there's so much stuff that people are now playing around with. What I, I'm curious, like, if there are any specific examples you've seen where you're like, yeah, that's exactly how we were hoping folks were going to use that. <laughs> A great example, I think, is, uh, if, have you seen TL Draw? That went viral in, in the last week or so. Yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so the, the interface for folks who haven't seen it is essentially you load into TL Draw. It's a it's a basic blank slate, and you can draw stuff, and it essentially takes what you drew and converts it automatically into like a functional app. And I think it's it's like end-to-end using a bunch of the different pieces that we've built and like orchestrated together over the last year. And if you go back to the original GPT-4 demo that that Greg Brockman yeah, gave, the famous drawing in, in March, I was sitting right there <laughs> as he was as he was giving that demo, watching him give it, and it, it's just so mind blowing to see him take that example, all of the work that had to happen to make Vision ready to to go out into the world and and be used safely and and robustly and reliably, and reliably, um, and then now to see like. A developer and, and probably in the order of a couple of days or a few hours was able to like take that, build it into a real application. Hundreds of thousands or millions of people were able to use it. I think that's like the the perfect success story in my mind of like making this technology accessible to as many people as possible and like actually building real things. And again, I think TL Draw is like intentionally supposed to be like a little bit gimmicky, but there's a lot of use cases now where I could see like building off of that that are actually really, really, really useful to people. Yeah, what's one that uh, that you that you'd go build? I, I not that I would go build this, but I think a similar one to this. I don't, have you seen any of those um, like people sketching art and then having the art go and like use a generative uh, image model to actually go and create it? I think like just that lens. For me, I feel like I'm somebody who's always been so like creatively limited by like I'm just like I feel like I can do things, but I don't know like what it's going to look like from like an art perspective. And I think it's so cool to be able to be like, here is what I could create if I, you know, kept working on this like That's crappy so cool. so you start with scratch. a little bit and then see yeah. different places. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that it, it free in a lot of ways. I feel like Dali has pushed me to like free my mind of what's possible. Like, I, I feel like I can imagine more because I'm inspired by this AI art that's been created. And I think that's like, that feels super empowering to me. I, I like it. And I think there's hopefully a bunch of other cool use cases like that. That's really cool. I don't know if there's any tool that can help my poor artistic skills, but that seems, <laughs> I love the idea of being able to explore different possibilities. It, it can at least it, inspire you. I'm like, yeah. hey, there's there's a lot of true, work yeah. you Maybe need a, to do. a gap between the inspiration and execution. But yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's uh, that's awesome. I guess you mentioned like we're still so early days of, of GPT-4V. It sounds, or GPTV, it sounds like you were saying that, you know, there's still a lot of things that need to get solved. Like, um, you know, it almost seems like the next version, you feel like there'll be just like a ton more of a broad applicability. Like, I'd, I'd love to hear just a bit more about that, like what you've noticed about what it can do well, what it can't do well. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is like people like you could imagine a, a great use case for um, I'm, a, I'm a huge Canva user. I've always used Canva to make things because I'm again, going back to my lack of artistic <laughs> skills. I've, I've made like both. hundreds and hundreds of things on Canva before because they give you incredible templates. And I think like that's a great example for Canva where the the vision model today cannot really do a perfect job of understanding all of those spatial relationships. And I think there's a bunch more examples like that. Like if you try to do OCR with like taking pictures of, of spreadsheets or receipts or whatever, it, it gets a lot of the stuff right most of the time. But I think it, it misses like some of the structure and it'll tell you things are in the wrong place. And you can imagine for like the Canva example, like that it has to work in, in the spatial relationship between these things. And, and what I really want to do is be able to go into Canva and be like, hey, you know, reformat this to like fit something and like see the like movable objects, essentially like the crossover of Canva and Dali and see the movable title and everything like that. And now I can just click and drag and edit all that stuff. Because if you if you look at Dali today, like the text output is, is not always perfect. And, it, you know, oftentimes it's like a really easily fixable thing. It's like a couple of characters that I need to fix. So um, I'm hopeful that the model ends up being able to enable experiences like that because it's otherwise it's, you know, the, for Dolly, for example, like, I don't even know what the solution would really be to like fix some of those text things. Like you really can't do it. You have to like really have a lot of skill to like go into Photoshop and like totally. edit something like that. So totally. I feel like how, yeah, how you make the outputs of Dolly like editable is, is a fascinating and, and very important question. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if we'll, we'll solve it or Canva will solve it, but I think there's a lot of people who have a, 
I've, I've vested interest in making that work well from a, like a Photoshop might solve it. Who knows? We'll see. Totally. And then, I mean, obviously you spent all day with developers and enterprises and I feel like you guys over the last year have just been systematically, you know, whatever objections one might've had or reasons people weren't building, you're just like shooting them down one by one. And, and, you know, even I noticed, uh, in, in dev day, you guys, uh, you know, provided protection against lawsuits under copyright, which is something that comes up a lot on the enterprise side, you know, going into 2024, if you were to kind of stack rank the reasons that like enterprises and developers aren't building with, uh, you know, with LMs in general, what are like the main objections you see or the main blocks you see for uh, for more folks using this? Yeah, I think the the largest one is robustness and rel- and reliability. And I think today you you actually likely need to like build some of these like more um, intricate orchestration frameworks and like use third party tools like guardrails AI and some of these like a bunch of there's tons of like compliance LLM companies that are out there Um, and I think like the reality is you need to use those today like if you really want to go into production and and feel the confidence that you know something bad's not going to happen I think you have to do that and um, I'm hopeful that like from a pure platform perspective we'll continue to like upstream solve a bunch of those problems and then it's just a matter of like my my fear is because people are going to be so accustomed to these problems, they're even when we end up solving them, people are still going to be like, "Oh, I I'm want kind of extra guardrails check." Yeah, yeah, I want my I want to build all these extra things. Um, so I think I'm hopeful we'll be able to solve that and, and communicate that to developers. I think the other one is just like, and this can th- this seems like it's always going to maybe be a problem with how the AI ecosystem is going, but like latency is huge. Like there's a lot of use cases where people don't can't have the model sit there and or can't have their user sit there for like seven seconds and wait for a response. And there's just a lot of work that we need to continue to do internally from a model development perspective, from a from an inference perspective to make that work better. And I, I hear customers when they say like this isn't, you know, this isn't fast enough for my use case. And and I'm hopeful that by the end of 2024, nobody will be saying that anymore because the models will be super, super fast and we'll have enough GPUs finally um, <laughs> if NVIDIA keeps <laughs> keeps doing their job. Um, so w- hopefully that will will not be an objection anymore. I feel like there's this whole class of use cases where you like want to stay in your creative flow and that like extra, you know, yeah. second of, of generation like takes you out of that. It really does. I think it's it, it in some ways LLMs are, are like the... I heard someone say this, that it's like a clone of human thought. And in many ways, it doesn't move at the speed of thought. And I think that's that can be so jarring in, in a lot of a lot of experiences. In some ways, though, I actually I and this this takes me to the a broad topic of like the different user interfaces and, and UX experiences. I think in a lot of ways, like not having an instant response will be useful in a bunch of a bunch of circumstances. And I'm I'm curious to see who ends up like coming up with a bunch of thoughtful design patterns around this. Cause I, I, I feel like we're all going to be trained even more so than just like going on Google and finding an answer or something. It's going to be like, you can really get the answer to what your question is like even faster. And when you don't have that, our attention spans like go down so significantly. So it, it's fascinating. Totally. Yeah. I think with, uh, you know, the, the TikTok generation is only, uh, only so I didn't want to pick on TikTok, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the, uh, the, the UX pattern of, Streaming the answer, you know, one word at a time seems to be a clever way to get around uh, a lot of that stuff. Very true. Well, look, I, we always like to kind of end our interviews with a quick fire where we just get your thoughts on a, on a few things. Yeah. So maybe first, what's overhyped and underhyped in AI today? Overhyped prompt engineering, underhyped observability. I think more people, like if you're actually building something, you should be using, uh, you should find some way to do observability, whether you build it yourself or use some off the shelf product. I think it's hard to use these models and not understand like the, everything that's happening. I guess I'm curious, like throughout the last year at OpenAI, maybe an example of one thing you thought would work that you guys released and it just didn't. Hmm. Because it seems like it's just been one nonstop string of wins. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think maybe plugins is the best example of this. Like I think plugins was, was close to what we wanted, but it was just missing like a few core things. Um, I think the nice part was we were able to turn it into a win with, with GPTs, I feel like, but I think that's probably the best example of when plugins first came out, I really thought that like, that was kind of going to be the solution that people wanted. Like it felt like that initially because people were so excited and like, this is the next app store, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, it didn't end up being the case. And I think a lot of it comes back to like just the experience of using and building plugins like wasn't there yet. We just needed more time to continue to refine that. 
Yeah. And I guess on the counter side, is there something that you guys didn't think would be a big thing? You know, I know ChatGPT is the canonical example, but maybe <laughs> something else in the past year uh, that maybe was a footnote in a release and ended up being this like, you know, much bigger, worked much better than you would have thought. I think function calling. Function calling is a great example of like, I wouldn't have intuitively thought that this is something that you would need to build or, or want to build, but it actually is like what enables like most really interesting production use cases is people doing function calling. So I think that's been my biggest surprise. I just wouldn't have thought that that's like something that we would need to build for people. Totally. That makes, uh, makes sense. And, and I guess like, you know, I, I'd be curious, um, even just to hear about the evolution of like, you know, I think when you started, it was like just you uh, doing all things DevRel at OpenAI. Like, yeah. how is that, you know, how is like the team and, and you know, you've obviously seen this crazy journey in the past year. What is like, how has the team evolution been like at OpenAI in terms of, uh, I mean, obviously you've grown a lot in people, but like, what's that look like today? It's fascinating. I think this is my my first experience seeing something like this play out of, of like how quickly the company has grown, how much... Um, how how much work there is to do. And I think I was, I don't know if I was making this comment to you or I was making this comment to someone else earlier today, but it seems like even with more people coming on board, there's still an endless amount of work. Like there's so much work that needs to happen. And I'm I'm just, I'm, I'm so happy that we've gotten so many incredible new people onto the team. Um, I now sit in the developer experience team. We have a whole API experience team as well. We have like I think when I joined originally, there was like six or seven people who were doing all of the engineering work for the entire API, and now we have like we have so many folks from capabilities to fine tuning to a bunch of our enterprise offerings. So it's it's just awesome because people want so much from us, and like we just weren't able to do what people like a lot of the basic things that people were asking. And um, it feels great to know that we now have an incredible team that is pushing all the time to make this stuff happen. So it's. It's interesting, but it is also in some sense like a, a jarring experience to go through the growth. Like I, I can't imagine there's um, a lot of companies out there that have like gone through this crazy growth trajectory and just to like see how that plays out internally. And I think we've in a lot of ways done a good job of um, of navigating this. And, and we were talking before off camera about um, the whole uh, Sam and board situation. I think the, the very positive thing of, of that situation, the positive outcome is like really bringing together the team. And I think it would have been easy to over time. Um, and, and I, I didn't actually feel this way, but I think it is possible to assume that like over time, just because of how much the company has grown, like people just kind of go off on their own, you know, their own little areas. And like, there's nothing really bringing them back to the core mission. I think like that was kind of a, a nice, shake and wake up that like we, we are really all in this mission together and like we have to stay focused together and if you um have if you're one of those people who who joined recently and kind of you were like holy holy crap like i just joined and this everything kind of flashes before your eyes and um now you sort of feel like you you've you know bonded by that trauma in a lot of ways so i i do think that's one of the positive outcomes totally. of this i mean the important display of the hearts the open eyes i think that it's people the letter i mean it's really impressive yeah it, it was a it was an experience. I can I can imagine. I'm excited for the TV show they eventually make about, uh, <laughs> a about good, everything. A good documentary. Who, who's going to play you? I I won't be played. <laughs> thankfully, I hope that I'm not played. <laughs> uh, uh, my success outcome would be if no one is playing me. Very fair. Um, I mean, I feel like you you know you obviously spend so much of your day talking to developers, enterprises. I feel like there's so many folks out there that like maybe they use ChatGPT. They're like. I'd call AI curious. They know this is like the next big wave, um, but they haven't like fully dove in yet. And I feel maybe feel a little overwhelmed with just how fast the space is moving. Like you must have these conversations. What do you, what advice do you give to to those kind of folks and how to get started, where to get started? I think it's I think it's tough because I I actually imagine that this is like a vast majority of people. Like I th I do think a lot of people have heard about ChatGPT and we we released some of the numbers at Developer Day, but we have a hundred million weekly active users on ChatGPT. That's such a small number of, of people if you actually zoom out a little bit. And there's, at the end of the day, this technology is going to so profoundly impact the entire world. Um, I imagine most people, to be honest with you, listening to this podcast are probably folks of, <laughs> who have tried ChatGPT before. But I think for, for people who have tried ChatGPT, right, yeah, I think there's still you know, a, a set of people who have, but maybe haven't necessarily like figured out, well, okay, how do we put that into our enterprise? Or Yeah, it, it's a great question. I would also say like, go and take this and like talk to people who you know, and like be the, be the ambassador for, for AI in, in some sense would be my pitch. But I think some of the, the easiest ways is like, 
literally write down the problems that you have. Like if you can do an audit of like, here are the five things that I spend the most time doing in my job or my daily life that like I hate doing and don't really enjoy and want to get rid of in some sense. Um, or here are the five things that like I'm deeply passionate about and I really wish that I was better at. And the, the art example is is perhaps a good one. And me writing code is another great example. Like I, I want to be the best engineer that I could possibly be. And these tools really, really help amplify that. I think if you're somebody who's a developer and you're not like, I actually meet people today who are developers who aren't using chat GPT and they aren't using, um, GitHub copilot. And it blows my mind. I think every developer should be using these tools. Like it's really, it's table stakes. Like I think you could put somebody head to head who's an average developer versus like some of the best people in the world. And like the average developers are going to win with AI. And that means like you have to use this technology. It just makes to, to me, it feels like I have the freedom to to go and build anything that I can come up with in my head. And I didn't used to feel that way two years ago. Um, and I think it's just, it's incredible to think where the models are today. And you fast forward two years and like, you're really going to be able to, it'll be interesting for the venture capital space, but like, it'll be really, you really will be able to build whatever the product or services that you want because these models are going to help you so much. And I think, yeah, the world is just not ready for that yet. But <laughs> I think- ChatGPT was the most searched Wikipedia page. So I think people are yeah, looking, which is, <laughs> yeah, which is great. So I, I think that's that's an important first step, figuring out the problems you have, figuring out what it is that you want to be better at, um, and finding a way to integrate AI into like your your daily workflows. I think that it has to be a habit um, that you like go to these tools first, whether it's ChatGPT or something else, so that you can really start to see around the corner of how this technology is going to impact your your life and career and, and all those things. Totally. I almost wish that like, you know, people would document like here's some of the best writers that use you know ai tools and how they use those or the best artists or you know the best coders that use that have found ways to use this stuff and it feels like such like tribal knowledge now where like yeah. you know a friend will show you or something but i think you know uh finding ways to spread that more ubiquitously would be really cool this sounds like a great newsletter that you should start <laughs> go find go find the most incredible people in the world who are using these tools and, and share those stories i feel like that would honestly be super useful because in a lot of sense like i hear people on like not know like i think this goes back to that that core ux challenge of like you show up in ChatGPT and like i don't really know what i want to do with this i meet people all the time who and i i live in chicago so i'm outside of the like bubble and excitement about ai and most people are like i don't know how this actually helps me in my everyday life but like i do know what my problems are and i feel like there needs to be whether it's something that's built into ChatGPT or something else that like translation mechanism from here are the problems i actually have to um, how do I go in and solve these things in my real life? And my bet is actually that it's going to be, you know, companies like Apple in a lot of ways who have the user experience of a billion people around the world or whatever it is already locked into their ecosystem. And they can sort of start to show people what's possible. And you have like a little, you know, I think people are already sort of familiar with this with Siri, but you know, once Siri becomes actually useful and good, I think that'll, that'll pique a lot more people's interest to like, what can I do with this technology? So I think they and a lot of other companies like them have an important role to play, which is why I go back to like, I'm excited about Gemini. I think it's going to show a lot of consumers around the world what's possible with this technology. And they're going to go out and explore what are the tools that I can use to like best leverage this technology. Well, I think that's an awesome note to end on. I guess the last thing, I will leave you the last word of of just where can folks go to learn more about uh, all the stuff you're doing at OpenAI, about you. Uh, this is your place to shill. Uh, point point folks to wherever you'd like. Platform.openai.com. You can see all the cool stuff that, that we're working on from an API side. Um, and if folks have cool GPTs that they made, send them to me on Twitter. I'm very curious to see what uh, what folks are working on. Awesome episode with Logan. What, uh, what were some of the things that stood out to you? I think it's just, I mean... I'm always just struck by just the breadth of what OpenAI offers. And, yeah. you know, I think his, you know, and it just seems like it's going to continue that way. You always wonder, like, are there parts of of the offering they might not you know do as much on? I think what I found really interesting is when we were talking about open source models and he was saying, look, a lot of the reason people like open source models today is that you, you know, you, there's more control you have with fine tuning. You can do reinforcement learning on them. And he kind of hinted like, but, you know, later we'll probably allow reinforcement learning on, on our own models. And, uh, you know, you've seen it even with, Obviously, one of the promises of open source models is that it'll be cheaper and faster, but like certainly, you know, with the price cuts they've had to GPT 3.5 Turbo, like a lot of that's, you know, it is just the breadth of what they have is is really compelling. And I, I do kind of wonder uh, how long they just keep controlling like every part of this ecosystem. 
Totally. Yeah, it was the breadth also stood out to me and it really seems like they want to be this AWS of AI where every single thing a developer has, they're going to offer some version of it. They're going to have fine tuning, they're going to have um, RLHF, they're going to have models, they're going to have all the different steps that you would need. And uh, I just I thought it was interesting just how big or how comprehensive they want to make the platform. And then I think there's an interesting follow-up question onto that, which is in which one of those verticals are there opportunities for startups to build something specialized and maybe really good in the same way that we saw, you know, Snowflake go and own data warehousing um, from from AWS and others. I'm glad like, we got our obligatory Snowflake mention in. Gotta get Snowflake podcast. in. Yeah. The, it didn't start snowing now. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so I don't know. I think about like which ones of those verticals are potentially interesting ones for standalone startup tools. Um, but totally. yeah, the, I mean, I think he even mentioned really like impressive. observability and monitoring is like something that they're not going to do. And then, yeah. you know, they're obviously looking at other tools. Um, and then, yeah, you know, it's interesting. The other thing that I really thought was fascinating was his, you know, the idea of how people are going to build on top of this assistance product. Um, and, you know, his, his take that essentially a lot of people are going to want to engage with these models and these kind of experiences in applications that are already in. Mm-hmm. And so that like, you know, you can kind of see, it's funny, I remember when we talked to him, what, nine months ago, and he was like, embeddings, guys. Like, yeah, embeddings yeah, yeah. are the future. And like, lo and behold, everyone's doing like their rag pipelines and whatnot. Totally. Uh, I feel like he's like, look, like, assistance kind of in people's products is going to be this game-changing experience. And yeah. I, it's always fun talking to him because I feel like you're kind of, feel, you're seeing what's, what will just be very popular in six, nine months. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's interesting from a business standpoint, it would make sense that they want you to kind of continue to leverage your own data because then I think the more that you're using your own data and that's in the open AI ecosystem, the solution just gets stickier and stickier. And so I think with embeddings and some of these, um, the, the models you were talking about, like, I think that just their gravity starts to grow. Totally. Um, yeah, but they are in an interesting position. I, and I, I think I even asked them this straight up. It's like, on the one hand, they have a consumer product chat GPT, which like, you know, in an ideal world is like your homepage to every AI experience you want. And like, every, totally. you know, your assistant for everything. And then on the other hand, you have this assistance product that's kind of enabling you to live in, in, a, in a host of other products. And, you know, I'm not sure they're immediately intention, but you see over time, like they're, you know, the product teams that are working on each of these may have uh, may have different priorities. Totally. Yeah. Well, I think this, this kind of goes back to the strategy of do it all. Right? <laughs> they're going to, they're going to have an API and they're going to have the consumer facing app and they're going to have, and all of this is going to be fed into uh, you know, some massive AI model, uh, which I think yeah, it'll be fun to watch evolve. He seemed very excited for model eval startups yeah. um, and evaluation, which we've seen a ton of those. And it seems like it's been a really hot space for new startups just starting this year. And I wonder if that will be something where we start to see some of those scale next year as uh, people get farther and more mature and they're building on top of Mistral and OpenAI and those sorts of things. So um, I don't know, maybe model eval, something to watch for 2024. Anything else in the broader AI world that's uh, caught your eyes these days? Uh, I thought how Mistral dropped their model was so super cool. cool. How they had, <laughs> they first just released the the model weights and that was on Friday, went viral on Hacker News. Then they did the official announcement the Monday after the weekend that went viral on Hacker News again. And so I thought that was really cool developer marketing where they got to kind of double dip on the announcement. And uh, it also just seems like a great model that is both has amazing performance and um, and people are raving about. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. I mean, I was at NURPS, this big AI conference uh, in early December. And it's funny, you know, I think during the conference last year, ChatGPT was released. And so that was the talk of town. And yeah. then this year, all everyone was talking about was Mistral. And they were yeah. kind of, the team was there and had their cool gear on. And, uh, you know, it, it's cool to see uh, just the extent to which those, the quality of those models and, yeah. and kind of the general open source ethos has taken the uh, the world by storm. Did you go to the conference? I did, yeah. Oh, nice. How was it? It was it was really cool. It was cool. Um, there's yeah. a lot of, lot of good energy. Yeah. Um, I've heard good things. I've never been. But, um, yeah, it seems like the de facto AI conference these days. A lot more VCs these days. A lot more VCs, I, I mean, I yeah. say that as part of the problem, so. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. So you're part of the problem. Always. Yeah. <laughs> um, to the extent our listeners haven't checked it out, too, one AI tool I think is just really cool is, I don't know if you, have you played around with Suno at all? Like the... The latest release they have on the music side. Is it the music? Um, I have not played around with it, but fun fact: it is powered by Modal. Um, <laughs> so you know, shameless plug. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I've heard it. Everyone's really cool. gonna think I just like set you up for yeah, a yeah, yeah. there. 
Um, I haven't played with it yet, though. It's really so. Uh, it's really cool. Like we might have to start using it for our theme music. Like literally, you can just prompt with like you know write a song about how great a podcast host Pat is as a country song or something that and, like, sounds like a hit it generates yeah. it, it would be a banger uh and it like generates the lyrics for the song and then like sounds like your average country song huh. um i was uh it's funny i i like nerd out on this stuff and i show my wife most of it and she's like 90 percent of it is like what is this uh-huh. but this one was a huge hit last night we were okay. playing around with it for a while so it passes julie's bar for, yeah. yeah which yeah. is way higher than my bar yeah, right now, yeah. So she'd be a good investor yeah that makes sense um cool yeah no i i definitely would love to play with it i think the generative music is so cool like it is really really fun when it works so yeah, what do you think of Gemini? Well, it's funny. Like, I, you know, uh, the day we had the interview with Logan, Gemini came out in the morning. And I was uh-huh. like, I wonder if he's going to say anything or whatnot. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there was like an entire hype cycle around Gemini in between that interview and and our release here where first, you know, this demo came out and it looked amazing. And then people were like, wait, is this real? Or is this kind of yeah. like a bunch of shots put together and, and, and many attempts? Uh, and then obviously, you know, I think folks are just kind of getting access to the model. Um, but I, I really liked Logan's take on it, which was, you know... Uh, Obviously, it's great to have other things out there. It feels like it, it feels like one of the big themes for 24, now to get a second prediction, is uh, multimodal. It feels well, like yeah. that. And that obviously is a huge part of the Gemini model totally. and GPTV and, and all this other stuff. And I think we're going to see a lot of, you know, we're just starting to experiment with what happens when you input images or videos into these models and output some combination of text, image, yeah. and video. And just the different things you'll be able to do, um, I think, are really, uh, the, really cool. The, the multimodal demos are really really impressive and i think that was the most impressive thing about gemini where you could um you know the guy was drawing the duck and then it could see the duck being drawn in real time and i i do think that's where the future is going and then there's so many cool applications that's bringing it back to iron man that's where you get to iron man vision so i'm, I'm shocked you went to, to iron for. man and not to plugging live kit but i guess that is uh yeah you know. <laughs> <laughs> there we go too